All right, and we're live here at the station of decapitation without your head. I'm Nasty Neil. I'm Treacherous Trista. Yes, and we're joined by the creator of Final Destination. He's here to talk about his new film, Don't Look Back, Jeffrey Reddick. It's very cool to have you here. Yeah, thank you. I was going to try to think of a crazy name that starts with a J, but I'll always get J was, is always well, very hard, I find. Yeah, I was like, Kelly? Right, no, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, juicy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the past, I've used jittery, which isn't very frightening. Uh, yeah, but that... And jugular. But I don't want to use oh, the same one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a writer. I should have a, a bigger vocabulary with the J's. But um, yeah, right. jugular. I like jugular. Jugular Jeffrey. <laughs> yeah, it works. I like it. <laughs> you can think about that the next movie. You, that can be a challenge for you. Try to think oh, of a, a, a horror film named Jay. Yeah, I will. That's definitely. <laughs> <laughs> That's always the best way to start with a, with your movie. I think I'll just start with a letter. Who's the killer? What's the killer? Yeah, <laughs> Juggler J is not a bad name. I may have to, I may have to use that. And give you all credit for it. <laughs> all right, very good. Very good. So don't look back. It's coming out on demand and in theaters October sixteenth. So not very far from now. Ten days from now. So it's yeah, good. yeah, yeah. I'm really excited about it. It's my my first film directing. Um, first time directing a feature. So ex- excited to to get it out there to the Was world that- finally. Was that something you always wanted to do, direct, when you started getting the films? You know, I didn't when I started. I, you know, I started off wanting to be an actor, then a writer, um, and then directing's been something I've been interested in doing. Um, and there, I have a couple of projects that I've like, oh, I want to direct these someday. But then finally, I'm like, well, someday is not. <laughs> someday's going to be, you know, someday unless I actually sit sit down and do it. So I decided I was going to, you know, kind of make the jump. And, and, and direct my first one. And um, I had a great time doing it. So I'm looking forward to, to doing some more down the road. For people not familiar yet, what is Don't Look Back about? Um, it's a mystery. It's more of a mystery thriller. It's about a group of people who see somebody getting assaulted in a park and they don't intervene and help the person out. And the person dies. And, you know, one of the witnesses videotapes it and it gets out to the world. And once the witnesses are out of the public, something or someone starts coming after them. So you're not sure if it's, a supernatural threat or if it's a real killer coming after them uh so yeah it's uh it, you know it's it's definitely horror-ish but it was since i i couldn't reveal like what was doing it or who's doing it um you know i couldn't kind of get into like really awesome like supernatural splatter scenes or slasher scenes so um you know that was the only thing it's like i, I don't you don't get to see a lot of the kills because i couldn't really i didn't want to cheat with the kills so that when you came back later and watched the film again, you didn't feel like, Oh, when you find out what's going on at the end, you don't feel like cheated when you go, if you watch it again. So it was a fine line to walk with this movie, but I'm, I'm really happy with how it turned out. Uh, that whole setup I found interesting because I always think a, a problem in modern horror movies to find like a way around that people always have cell phones. And so yeah. like you just kind of went head on with it. They, it's kind of part of the horror of the movie is that people have cell phones today, but it's not necessary to use to, to help anybody. It's we're going to film this and put it up on uh, social media. Yeah. And that seems to be a problem that um, it wasn't as big of a problem when I wrote the script, but it seems to have gotten worse. Like I think I hope, hopefully we're at the peak of it now, but yeah, people's first instinct is, you know, pull out your phone and start recording. It's like, well, at least pull out your phone and call 911 and then start recording. You know, it's like, take that step but um yeah it's, it does seem like people are so interested now in like 
getting something up online and trying to get virally famous that, that they've, yeah, we've just lost that connection to wanting to help other people. Yeah, which that's real life horror, which yeah. always, you know, plays yeah, really well is. and something I think a lot of people can relate to. Well, since you said it's more of a thing now than even when you wrote it, though, was there an incident or anything that kind of like inspired that idea? Um, there was there was there was a story that always that I heard when I was young that always stuck with me about this woman Kitty Genovese, um, who the story at the time was that she was assaulted in the uh, courtyard of her apartment. It was a horrible story, and the story was like thirty people witnessed it and didn't help. And so I that story always stuck with me um, over the years, and then. You know, I had a couple of situations where, you know, I was like, should I get, get involved or not? So I realized that that was kind of a human thing that we all go through. Um, so I decided to use that as a setup for a, for a horror film. And um, it's interesting because when we were, were flying down to Baton Rouge to Location Scout, there's actually a documentary on the Kitty Genovese story. And you find out that actually some people did call the police and did help, but a reporter had gone down there um, to cover the story and that was the kind of shocking angle that he went with and that that story became like the urban legend that we've all heard that nobody that nobody helped but yeah that was a story that always it, it's just always at the heart of you know it just really stuck with me my whole life that i just thought it was awful how can people how can nobody help and you learn about the bystander effect you know you learn about the psychology of why people don't help um, so that was useful for this movie, but, you know, you also want to, it's, you know, it's a movie. So there's some people that don't help for very selfish reasons. And there's some people that, you know, have a little bit more justification for why they don't get involved. Um, but nobody like calls the police. Like, that's a thing. It's like, so I don't expect people, you know, you don't expect people to run in and break up a, right. a fight or something where they put themselves in danger, but um, it's like, do something. There's something that you can do. Yeah, especially when you actually physically have the tool to do that, and instead yeah. of you, you're instead of using it to call, so you're actually using it to just record it. Record it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even I myself have joked like if I'm at somewhere and I was like, if something happens, at least record it so we can put it on YouTube. But you know, yeah, it's yeah, a joke, it, but it's but you, yeah, it's we've become conditioned to do that too. Like it's almost, you know, like yeah, I have my cell phone with me all the time, and and you know, it's funny the character uh, Nathan in the movie who records it is like. You know, he's talking to police. I was like, well, I recorded it for you guys, you know, but you're like, did you really? Did you right. really talk to the police? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot of interesting ideas that we're, we're playing around with in this. Did, did you write the script knowing you were going to direct it or was it a script you wrote, you know, before you knew you wanted to direct? Um, I wrote it before I knew I wanted to direct it, to be honest. Um, I had a, I have a couple of passion projects that I wanted to do first. But, you know, we got interest in this script and we, we had it set up at a studio that was going to make it. And then we cast the film. We got all of our locations and we came back to L.A. and they were like, we're shutting down our film department. And I was like, oh, great. And so um, my producer on it, Andrew Vandenhout, and we one of the he's the, like the main producer on it. Um, we just we decided, you know what, we've been through this. You know, you go through this so many times with projects where they almost get made. They almost something falls apart. And so I was talking to Andrew and Andrew's like, let's just make it independently. Like, you know, screw the studio. And I'm like, all right. And that actually, you know, there are limitations obviously when you're doing like an indie film, like with locations and things you have to work, work with, but you also get a lot of creative freedom, like with casting and, and what the, in the story, you know, the story that you're telling. So you get a lot more creative freedom doing it independently. So I'm really happy that we went that route because again, if we'd have waited around forever, you know, 
it would probably still not be made for, you know, now we're in COVID. Um, so we shot it last March, right before, you know, not right before, but before all of the COVID stuff happened. So um, I'm glad I did it because it was also a challenging film to do for my first one because the easy way to do this would have been to be like, just have it be all supernatural and you could have like really bloody, like fun set pieces with people flying in the air and get ripped apart or you could make it a slasher movie and same thing, people getting chased and, you know, killed. But, you know, I, I'm glad that I picked this one because it was different and it was a little more challenging. So, um, you know, I do want to sink my teeth into like a straight up horror film the next time. Cause I, I want, I want all the, the grew the grew in the blood. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but it was fun to do something a little bit more psychological, um, where I couldn't kind of just dip into that bag of tricks I have for, for horror. Yeah. Is that what drew you to horror to begin with? Is like uh, the gore or I guess what drew you to horror? Um, I think what drew me to horror when I was young is it, it was kind of an escape, you know, from, from life. And it was also, you know, me and my friends would watch them and everybody was like, Oh, how can you all watch that stuff? It's so gross and disgusting. So it's kind of like, you know, we thought we were cool cause we could watch it because uh, it was kind of forbidden right. and then my mom didn't like me watching them but then also she was like well he's hanging out with his friends at their house watching horror movies so he's not out you know getting in trouble or you know doing drink drinking or doing drugs so well we'll let him do that even though we'll complain about it <laughs> <laughs> do they watch your horror movies uh yeah yeah uh my mom she, uh she's she passed a few years ago but oh, i'm sorry she watched everything and then my sister definitely you know, goes to see everyone. all my relatives. Yeah, they go to see them. It's they're very supportive, so yeah. it's cool. Uh, Tristan, you have a question. So you said your first love was acting, and then obviously you found success as a writer, and now you just directed your first feature. Um, is it possible to ascertain which one of those you love the most or are most pas passionate about? Um. It's it's tough because I I've, I loved acting like I studied I, from the from the time I was young I studied theater I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts for a summer program but you know I started off in the early '90s when you know non traditional casting was not a thing and diversity in casting was just not even on people's lips so um, literally my agent was like well you're kind of like an ethnic Michael J Fox and I don't know what to do with that so. You know, if you played basketball or if you could rap and basically if I was, you know, darker, you know, she's like, I could find you work, but I like there, I just don't know what to put you up for. So the acting, you know, has changed in the last like, de you know, decade, maybe a little, it's gotten better, but um, that was such a, you know, hard thing to overcome. It's like, well, there, there are no roles for you. So I've definitely spent most of my, my life writing, which I do love. Um, I still like, act, you know, but I don't do it. I just do like little cameos here and there, but acting, I think I love probably because it's maybe my unfulfilled passion, you know, like I still love writing and, um, I really enjoy directing as well. Like I still like, you know, the, the passion projects I want to do, I still have our intention of doing those as well. But, but, um, that's a, that's a very political answer where I talk about all three things and don't give you a real answer, but I, I don't know. I think acting, I feel because maybe I haven't done it as much as I want to. Like, I still feel like that is the thing I would still love to do. Um, you ever tempted to write uh, when you're writing to write a role specifically for you? No, you know what? 
not for the bigger product, not for my projects because I'm, I, I just know how when you sell something, they want to cast names in all the roles. So I've never written a big role for myself. I've just always like taken a cameo here and there, but I, but I love doing it. So I don't know. I may write a role for myself at some point, but it's uh, funny because I write about yeah. killing teenagers. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, I guess if I dyed my hair with, and did the old Dawson's Creek thing, I could be like college. You could be a professor. I could be a professor. Yeah. Hmm. Um, those are like that conversation you said though, you know, like uh, if you play basketball, you rap. And stuff. Is that something that you kept in mind though, when you, when you are writing scripts, like I'm going to write roles that could be played by anybody or, or, you know, people that people yeah. like me in that same position today. Yeah. Like, I mean, the, the funny thing is I've written roles like that in every one of my scripts, but they still always cast them with white actors and actresses. Um, and I think that that's the part of the conversation that kind of gets lost on the current generation when, we're, when we are talking about representation in film um, is it's, it's just the default in people's mind when they read a script or read a book, like they always envision a, a white person. So when we send out a casting notice saying, you know, open to all ethnicities, 99% of the submissions we get are white actors and actresses. So we have to send out a specific casting notice saying we, we're looking for black actors or Latino actors or Asian actors or, you know, it's, you, and, and still you still go <laughs> them sending you some white people. So um, that's why I had such a great time with casting Good Samaritan because I've, I've been in casting sessions for films where we have been specifically looking for actors and actresses of color. And I've seen so many wonderfully talented people. So I know when studios say, oh, well, the reason we cast, especially when it's a role that was, you know, a comic book role that had a, you know, it was an Asian character or a Latino character or African-American where they cast a white actor or actress and they say, oh, we just cast the best person. That's just bullshit. They cast the person that they thought would be the most accessible to audiences um, because they, they're just not looking like, and so with this film, um, you know, I found a, an African-American actress who was am amazing and perfect for the lead character. And I'm so glad that I did it independently because I pr probably wouldn't have had a chance to cast her if I had done it at the studio. So would you say that that's really not gotten better on like the more mainstream level then? Um, I think it's maybe gotten better like within the last year and a half when people have started being aggressive about it. Um, I think it has gotten better, um, re but it's been very recent. It's been very recent. And, and again, and the issue is it's, you know, I, I don't, I don't like to use the term racism about everything because I think some things are racist, like actively bad racist. But I think, and again, it's just a lot of it is what people's default is when they automatically think of a character, you know, and when they see a leading, act, leading role, they automatically just send all their white talent for the leading yeah. women. It might so, not be a malicious intent there. It's, it's not just, malicious. Right. It's just, you know, it, but then when they say, oh, well, that we found the best person, it's like, well, there's a whole pool of people that you didn't even consider for the lead role. Um, so they're just, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like they used to just be automatically excluded from lead roles. And now people are starting to include them in lead roles so that it's changed. The perception has changed and the, and the dynamic has definitely changed recently. Uh, when you said you studied uh, to be an actor, um, yeah. how about uh, directing? Is that something, did you do that in school at all? Or is it something working on other no. movies that you, you know, kind of learned? 
Yeah, we're, it's being, I, I've been fortunate to pretty much be on the set of all my, my films. Um, so I, I just went on set and I watched directors and I, you know, learned. I mean, it's funny until you actually direct, you know, you still don't know the things that you don't know until you get on set. But um, it's almost like the writing, like, because I was so focused on acting growing up that when, when that happened with my agent, I was like, well, I'm not going to quit the business. I'm going to stay in this business. I'm good at writing. So let me focus on that. And, you know, then I started doing more producing and now it's, I'm at a point where it's like, I have stories that I want to tell. And instead of waiting for other people to like finance this stuff and get us together, if I can do it myself, I'll try to do it myself. I, again, it would be great to do a movie at a studio level, you know, like, you know, Final Destination had a, the first one had a $20 million budget. I mean, that would be sweet. <laughs> so, so, but, you know, you, if the business has changed so much that it's, you know, to get those kind of budgets for, for projects, it's like, they want you to already have like a couple of A-list actors, on, you know, that have bankability around the world. It's not just that they're well-known, they have to be bankable. It's, there's a lot of business stuff that you have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of like the, the, this new age where people are starting to direct things and put them on like digital platforms and YouTube. And, you know, there's a lot more opportunity for filmmakers, which is great, you know, to get your work out there and get it seen. So this is probably one of the best times for other people that are aspiring writers or directors or, or actors, any, any kind of artists, is now you have the internet and you have these platforms where you can get your work out there and be seen. So you don't have to rely on trying to get to Hollywood and get to a studio to make your stuff. So it's gotten the, it's a, it's a much better place and time to be a filmmaker. Um, Along those lines, because I, you know, that comes up a lot. There's more platforms now. Something I thought about uh, recently was not only the more platforms. So like you said, there are more people get their stuff out there. I think it's, um, you could get some stuff out there that not normally wouldn't have been seen like more niche stuff that like, people would have been like even like kind of mainstream stuff i don't think years ago like people would have made a show about a teacher who's selling math or anything you know yeah that probably wouldn't have happened when there's like three network channels but oh yeah 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 you there's a lot more and and the thing is there's so many people in the country like there's like 300 million people in the united states alone um so if you there's a there's a nick there's an audience out there for everything. It's just, you've got to figure out a way to get to them. And a lot of people aren't, not everybody's on the internet, not everybody's on Twitter or Facebook, but you know, also on the internet, it's a global market now. So, you know, there's an audience for, for what you as an artist have to put out. It's just trying to reach them and figure out how to, how to get a hold of them. But you have the ability now to, to reach a global audience when you didn't have that before it was like you had the major networks and three i mean the three networks the major studios and that was it mm-hmm. so yeah it's it's a it's a it's a very interesting time to be a an artistic person because again it's really just about getting your work in front of eyeballs or in front of ears um and trying to figure out how to get that done uh, when you said about being on set on most of the movies you wrote was that something like you wanted to do or was it just ha- something that happened that way no i want i wanted to go and the good thing is I'm, I worked at New Line Cinema for 11 years, and that was a studio that produced Final Destination and has produced all of them and put them out. Um, so I knew that the reason a lot of times directors didn't want writers on set were because, you know, once a director comes on a project, you're, you're basically handed over to them. It's their project. It's not your project anymore. So I know a lot of directors had had bad experiences where, you know, writers just show up on the set and they're like, that's not how I wrote this scene. And they start talking to the actors and it just, it's a, 
it's a pain in the ass for the director. Um, so I was very mindful beforehand of being like, look, I know the deal. Like I'm just going there to observe and have fun and watch. I'm not going to go there and say anything or I know this is your film. And so I just kind of laid that out. And so the directors have been really, had been really great about letting me come to set and having me come to set. So. I was on my first uh, feature set uh, in uh, December. That's actually, I met Trista and Mm -hmm. uh, just being there, like, I know it sounds silly, but uh, like I had a a certain perception of what a director does and it it was a lot different than what the director actually does. Yeah. Yeah. No, it doesn't sound silly at all. Like it's, you know, being on set, it demystifies a lot of the, um, the ideas that you have in your head, you know, like, yeah, you, you grow up hearing about directors that are, you know, like running around on set with bullhorns and screaming at everybody and yelling, <laughs> sitting in their chairs with their three piece suits. And it's like, some of them are like that, but I haven't seen any bullhorns, um, but it is a, it is a lot. Every set is completely different. Like the director set definitely sets the tone. And um, I've been fortunate that, that all the directors that I've, worked with they've all been like really mellow um down to earth seasoned kind of professionals or even if they were new they were very just down to earth like mm-hmm. haven't had a screamer and yeller in the bunch <laughs> well that's good uh tristan do you have a question you mentioned working for new line and i'm wondering if you can talk more about how you got that job and your experience and your relationship with uh, robert check oh yeah um it's so funny how i how i ended up at new line uh, it started when I was 14, I saw A Nightmare on Elm Street. And I grew up in this small town in Eastern Kentucky. And I saw the movie and it blew my mind. Um, that's a movie that made me fall in love with horror movies. Like I liked them before that, but this Nightmare on Elm Street made me fall in love with movies. So I went home and I banged out a, an origin story for Freddy Krueger, you know, which is a 14 year old origin story. I mean, I was 14, so it wasn't that great. Um, but um, I sent it to Bob Shea. I, I got his address and mailed it to Bob Shea in New York. And he wrote me back and said, I'm sorry, we don't take unsolicited material. So I had to look up what that meant because I was only 14. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I wrote him, I sent it back to him and I said, look, sir, I've spent $3 on your movies. So I think you can take $5 or you can take five bucks <laughs> for your story. And he did, he read it and he got back to me and he was very encouraging and Bob Shea and his assistant, Joy Mann, who's um, unfortunately no longer with us, um, they kind of took me under their wing um, and they would send me scripts and movie posters and movie tchotchkes and they, you know, just really encouraged me to keep writing. So from age 14 to 19, when I was in Kentucky, I was always in contact with them. So when I was 19, I went to New York to study at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts for the summer and Joy and Bob were like, do you want to intern here for the summer? I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. And then after, you know, I got an agent who later told me that I reminded her, I think Michael J. Fox and couldn't <laughs> get me any work. But, um, you know, I got an agent. I was working at New Line. So I'm like, nah, I'm not going to, I'm going to stay here and not go back to school. So I ended up staying um, at New Line and then got hired on and then worked there for 11 years. So it was, it was a, it was probably, I mean, especially when I started there, like New Line was just the best studio to work for. Um, You know, everybody there was, all the executives were film lovers there. You know, you had Bob Shea, Sarah Risher, you know, Mike DeLuca, like, and they were making movies that studios would make. Like, you know, they made Blade and studios were like, who wants to see a black vampire slayer? Uh Um, You know, Dumb and Dumber of a mask. Who wants to see a movie about a guy with a mask? You know, like so they would make these movies that no other studio would make. 
um, just off creative instinct that there was an audience out there for, for them. So there was a lot of like creative freedom there. And, you know, and I was in the New York office, so that was the corporate office. So I can imagine how awesome LA would have been the LA office, but I love the New York office. Um, and I learned a lot just as a filmmaker because I saw, I saw how they made movies behind the scenes. So I would see a great script come in from an unknown writer that didn't have any elements attached to it. And then I would see a really awful script come in with an A-list star attached and they would make the awful, you know, that's later, you know, as it started getting more corporate, I would see those decisions and I was like, oh, this isn't about the value of the writer or the script. So I learned to separate my ego very early on in the, in the business, which I think is probably what's kept me, you know, not from not going crazy or not quitting the business at any point, you know, is I've learned, I mean, it's still obviously if somebody rejects your work, it's, it doesn't feel good, but I'm not devastated. Like a lot of my, you know, colleagues or newer people starting out in the business I know can often, if their one script gets rejected, they're devastated and they think I should never do this again. And you have to realize it's not, you should always be open to creative criticism because that's the only way you're ever going to grow. And I meet a lot of people who think that they're the best at what they do. And I think once you're at that point, you're done growing. Um, and you're probably not the best if you think that. And because um, I found like some coverage from New Line, like for my first script I'd sent them. And the executive, I was still in Kentucky, and the executive of X said, it got really good coverage, but it's not right for us. And when I went, when I finally started working there, I found that old coverage and it was awful. <laughs> it was like this kid, you know, it, it's adorable this young kid's writing a script, but he'll never be a writer. And I'm like, I'm glad, you know, if I'd have read that the first, when I was young, I would have probably been like, oh, I guess I can't do this. So, you know, you've got to learn to kind of take constructive criticism, but you also, no matter what kind of artist you are, but especially a writer as well, like you, you get better over time. Like your first several scripts are probably not going to be the greatest scripts in the world because you don't have the practice and in, in the, you know, you just don't have the practice that you have um, after you've written four or five or six or seven scripts. So. Um, I think the best thing I learned there was just to separate the not taking things personally and learning how the business operates. So that helped me a lot moving forward when I deal with other, you know, studios or when I deal with creative people, I think I, I know how to deal with creative people better. Um, but it was a, yeah, it was a wonderful, I mean, plus they made Nightmare on Elm Street and they made my movie. So they're the best studio ever. In my <laughs> <opinion>. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> what was it about, what was it about Nightmare on Elm Street? Do you think that, really stuck with you you know i think there was just so much going on in that movie um it was it was it was smart i'd never seen a villain like freddie before um the way that wes craven like blurred the line between like you weren't sure if you were in a dream or you were in reality like i'd never seen that done like that before i think heather langenkamp you know playing nancy i think nancy was the 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 toughest smartest final girl i'd ever seen in a movie up until that point she's probably one of the f- smartest in, in the genre, if you think about it, because, you know, as much as I love a lot of the other iconic scream queens and other horror franchises, you know, in the first several movies, a lot, they spent most of their time, you know, running, they would stab the killer, run again and cry and stab the killer. And, you know, Nancy, like, she tries to, yeah, I'll thank him. And she, re- she researched yeah. him, booby trapped the house. She went in the nightmare after him. So, so there were just so in the soundtrack, everything about it. Like, I, I feel like with that movie, because all the studios had turned it down except for new line. And so I, you know, I, I think this was the, you know, not that he didn't pour his heart and soul into everything he did, but I'm just, I just feel like this was his, you know, dream project. 
and he put everything he had into it. So if you look at all the special effects they did with such a small budget, it's just, I just thought it was brilliant. Like it blew my mind when I was a kid. Like I was like, and I, I still watch it. I still love it. Yeah. Uh, do you, what do you think of the sequels? Um, it's all, it's funny because I'm in a, I, I'm in the minority in that as much as I think the sequels are, are good in there. Once you get some distance from them, like my issue with part two was that they made it compl- almost like a comedy. Like they went really heavy into the comedy with the second one and they broke all the nightmare rules. Yeah, um, that's what so, I, that's my problem is the rules. I think yeah. any kind of horror movie or any movie really, but you should stick yeah. to the, to the rules of the, whatever you yeah. establish. Yeah. So that, that was, that was kind of annoying. And also I got annoyed too, because you know, it, it, all the kind of homophobic stuff started coming out after the second one. And I remember David Chaskin pretty much threw Mark Patton under the bus and blamed it all on him. And it was like, I didn't write anything gay in the movie. I'm like, are you kidding? You've got the coach at a leather bar right. getting naked and wet. Like there are so many gay things in that movie. And now he admits that he, he did that on purpose. But at the time, you know, growing up, like as a gay man, like I, I or as a gay kid, I saw him throw kind of Mark Patton under the bus. I think it's, yeah. And it just, that frustrated me about the second one. Um, I love the third one. Um, but I'm also a big comic geek. So I felt like the third one, I know Wes had a much bigger vision for it in a bigger budget, but they wouldn't give it to him. So I, I felt that that, as much as I love it, I hate that they kill Nancy. <laughs> I'll never forgive them for that. Um, and I, the fourth one I think is, I love the fourth one, um, except for the fact that they kill all the dream warriors at the beginning. But I think stylistically, I think Rennie Harlan direct, I think, that, I think that was one of the best directed ones of the franchise. Just I thought it was so beautifully shot. And I love Wes Craven's New Nightmare um, that's personally my I think it's the best of the sequels I yeah, think it's the most yeah. underrated of the, of the movies I do too I do too I really I love Wes Craven's New Nightmare and you know Freddie Jason was fine I, I you know I, I had my own pitch that I pitched when I worked at New Line so I didn't get it um, so I, I enjoy it you know it's kind of goofy fun yeah. um, and, the, and the, you know the remake is just like you know, it's why? not as good as the first, as the original one, I think. Is no, know. no. I mean, they try what they they tried in the remake is the thing that bugged me was they they would have homages to the original scenes in the first movie, but then they would just CGI them and do them bad. Like, yeah, like one of the best scenes in the first one is when he's coming through the wall. Yeah, and it's done, I guess, from what I understand, pretty cheaply. But it looks way better than the CG version. I think. Oh yeah, it does. It does. And also, I, you know. I, this is the most I'll ever come to talking shit about somebody, but I just don't, you know, cause I, I read an interview where Kate Mara was um, compl- complaining that she got that role where she's like, yeah, I walked out of the audition and it was upset cause I knew I got it. And I was like, first of all, <laughs> that's very, you know, you should be grateful that you get work in of this course, town. Yeah. There are a million people that would kill for that job. Second of all, it shows in your performance because you're awful as Nancy. You're, you're definitely just wandering out in the movie. Like, can I, <laughs> Ends my contract up, so I, yeah, I, I thought her performance like really kind of ruined it with some of the other issues that, that I had with it. But um, yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what they do with that with that franchise now because you know it's a great franchise, and you know, I mean, Robert England's not going to want to play Freddy forever, and he can't play Freddy forever unless you CGI him a hundred years from now and mm-hmm. <laughs> do that body motion cap stuff. But right. um, it's the cool world still, so it'll be interesting. Yeah. 
I'm glad you like a new nightmare because I know oh, not, yeah. not everyone does, but I just, I love just the question it asks. Like, why are we, why are we, you know, into the, into the killer in these movies? Yeah. But, you know, it's yeah. an interesting and kind of makes us as horror fans, you know, question ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm really, I really, I love that one. Uh, uh, so Jeremy Holmes in uh, Don't Look Back, who I've had on yeah. the show, and I, I'm a big fan of his. I think he's awesome in The Ranger. And oh, stuff. he's such a diva. He was like the worst. <laughs> he threw stuff. He threw stuff at me. He fought all the time. He was so hard to work with. I forgot when I said I'd, I hadn't worked with him. Jeremy is so <laughs> mean. So I'm totally kidding. Yeah. Of course, he's like the nicest guy. We had, yeah, we were very fortunate to have him on, on the movie. He was just um, amazing. Uh, I know it's kind of early yet, but what has been like the the feedback so far for Don't Look Back? Um, you know what? It's been it's been good. I'm not just you know I don't know if people are just being nice to my face. Um, you know the one the one thing that I'm hearing, which I kind of expected, is is some of the horror reviewers are like you know it's not horror now. You know like there's I think they were going in expecting like a Final Destination kind of horror film right. with this, and it's it's not that at all. So I think that's been the 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 one critique I've heard from some people that I was expecting. Um, but so far the feedback has honestly has been really good. Um, I think the reviews start going up on the ninth. So all the people that I've done interviews with, I mean, again, they might just be saying that because they don't want to tell me on an interview um, <laughs> that they, enjoy, but they, I think they enjoy it um, because it, it it is, again, it is, it's, it's got horror in it, you know, cause anything I do is going to have horror in it, but it really is also kind of a, mystery and a, a statement on kind of guilt and you know karma and how we don't help each other so it's there's there's more there's that's more what st- i personally like in in horror genres you know some type of social commentary or yeah. you know more than just you know killing people which that's fun too but that's fun too i know it's always funny because when i talk about it i'm very mindful because i i used to I hate when i used to read in fangoria where there was a horror movie coming out and they're like well it's not really a horror movie it's more it's like it's a horror movie yeah. you know I'd always kind of know the people who really want to fight about what a what genre a movie is. I always think like, at the end of the day, does it really matter? Did you like it less if if you consider it uh, sci-fi or thriller than if you consider it horror? I don't really understand yeah. why why people get so uh, so uh, bent up on it. But I like that about horror too, because not all horror is the same. Yeah, no, I, I love the fact that there's like you know, because I consider a lot of thrillers to be horror films. They're sci-fi movies. Like Alien is a, in my mind is a horror film. Yeah. So that's what I love about it is I feel like it's a wide umbrella. Um, and so people when they say they don't like horror films, I'm like, well, which, what specifically, what do you want? I either usually hear like people that don't like bloody slasher movies because they don't like blood and people getting cut up. And I've met a lot of people who are like, I don't like possession movies because I ain't messing with Satan. <laughs> so those have been the two like uh-huh. definite ones. <laughs> I don't want, like movies where there are demons and I don't like movies where there's like people being tortured and like maimed violently. Yeah. Screen, so if you so. put out, if you put out a demonic possession movie with a lot of torture, you're going to turn off a lot of people. I'm going to turn off a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should do that though. <laughs> Uh, you're, uh, it's for me. I'm I'm, I'm good with it. Both You'll of them. So, yeah. <laughs> it's not to watch it. I'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. uh, Trish, do you have a question? As you mentioned, I think uh, one of the major themes in Don't Look Back is karma. And I'm wondering if that's a concept that you subscribe to or you feel is relevant in your own life. Um, you know what? I, I, I do. Um, and people have asked me that. And I, I it's weird because I, it's not like I – 
follow like the the Buddhist belief that that karma is an absolute thing, but it's just I've I've seen I've just I've had too many things happen in my life that couldn't be coincidence. You know, and one example I use, which is just an obvious one, is I was I was in New York one time and was walking to lunch at, from at New Line. I was walking to lunch and um, a friend of mine from college popped into my head and I walked around the corner and he was there visiting. And New York has millions of people and it's, you know, so the, so I've had a lot of stuff like that happen to me where I just know that, okay, this is, you know, it's just not a coincidence. I mean, why was I thinking about this person right before I bumped into them? I, you know, and so I think that, you know, I think if you, I, I like how Oprah said it one time, Oprah's very smart. I love, love Oprah, but she's, she kind of said, like, if you're kind of on the, the right path in life, like, you'll get little God nods from the universe, you know, like little things that are kind of letting you know, like, and there are little signs that you see. And sometimes they're just things that you see personally. Um, and I, and I do believe that. Cause I have found that when I'm kind of going with the flow of my life, when I'm not trying to over control everything, things will fall into place. They may not fall into place like I plan them to, but they fall into place. Whereas if I try to really force something that I isn't going to happen, it feels like I just, muck it up and it doesn't happen even more <laughs> so um and i do think if you put good energy out there in the world and you do good things that it does come back to you um you know it's almost like the people you attract you know it's like i certainly went through a stage in my life you know before i quit drinking where you know i was like i would just be out at a bar and i'm like why am i attracting all the like like psychotic like weird people and it's like because i was putting that I think I was putting that energy out there, you know, like I could go, I could go to like a crowd of bar with a hundred people. And like the one person that would walk right up to me would be like the really bad, like alcoholic drug addict who was like, you know, we're going to get married in five minutes. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think it is a lot about just what we put out in the world does kind of come back to us and also brings that to us. So, so uh, what else, we talked a lot about like um, kind of the modern stuff in the movie, but then you also have the crow in the movie, which I think is, you know, kind of like a contrast with modern stuff in like classic, you know, horror. I don't know if that was like a reason to include the crow. Well, it, you know, it's funny because um, I think when you're writing and creating stuff, you always take your, your influences come with you. So, you know, I love the birds. I love the omen, especially the omen too, you know, which had a very significant, you know, crow action in that movie. Um, <laughs> But, but also I think, you know, for, for me, I also wanted there to be a, a symbol. Like if you, if you watch the movie and you rewatch it, you realize the crow is always shows up when death is present. And when I say death, I don't mean like final destination death. I mean, like, you know, whether it's a supernatural or a killer that is doing, doing the evil, um, somebody's about to die. So when you go back and watch it, it's that thread that, you know, that sign of death is always there. So that's one of the things Caitlin picks up on that starts, you know, getting her on this road that she's looking around for, for other clues that will le- like kind of lead her to who the killer is. Is it hard to work with a crow? Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't want to give him a bad rap or anything, but, uh, <laughs> you know, when there, was a rap, yeah. we had, we had, we had really good animal wranglers cause we had mice and crows. And then we also, one of the nights we had the crow, we had rain machines. So, it was stunts, crows, and rain in one night. <laughs> um, but um, you know what? They're really good at flying and landing. So you can get them to fly and land really good. Um, but they're not good at sitting around. <laughs> so there's a scene where, where um, Caitlin and another character are looking out his window, and there's a crow that's supposed 
his cr crashed in the window was laying there on the ground and it's supposed to be flopping around and then fly off and we couldn't get it to flop so then we decided okay well we'll just get it to stay there on the ground but it kept landing in frame and then not angling itself so that we could get a good shot of it so um i re realized when i was watching the dailies back that i had the um courtney and um uh, damon who played kurt like i had them standing for 45 minutes I didn't realize it was that long because I was so focused on the crow and we were moving over and we kept rolling. But they stood in that window for 45 minutes looking down like they were like nervous, <laughs> which is hard, you know, to stand in one position. Yeah. And I went to them the next day. I'm like, I am so sorry. <laughs> I had no idea you guys. And they didn't complain at all. Like nobody in the cast ever complained. Um, they were wonderful. So they didn't say anything. I was like, I was like, we, we finally got the shot with the crow, but it was like going through like almost an hour of footage from different camera angles. Like, so, um, but they they fly good. The mice were actually much better. The mice were much better than the, the crows, I will say. Um, it's good advice for people out there when to put an animal in their movie. Go with the with go with the mouse. Go with go with mice. <laughs> uh, Mark Heller on Facebook wants to know uh, uh, why did you ruin uh, log trucks and roller coasters for all of us? Uh, <laughs> oh, Mark, I know, I I know that. At the beat. <laughs> um, I miss you, buddy. Um, you know what? I came up with the log truck idea um, in Final Destination 2 because we couldn't – it was originally going to be a hotel fire. And the producer, Craig Perry, was like, you know, that's just not – you know, it's not exciting enough. Like, we need something else. So I was, I was going home to visit my mom in Kentucky, and I got behind a log truck. And I always move over when that happens. So I pulled over, and I pulled off the road, and I called Craig, and I was like, what about a log truck? And he's like, what? Slow down. I'm like, what about a log truck on a freeway? And um, he's like, that's, that's it. So, um, you know, I, I have to give so much, so much praise to uh, uh, David Ellis who directed that film because, you know, we, he was a stunt person. So um, he's unfortunately no longer with us either, but um, he, he came from a stunt background. So for that scene, you know, we didn't write out every beat of it because we knew that he knew that world. So we're just like, here's what happens, go for it. And I think he directed one of the, one of my favorite set pieces of any any horror franchise actually yeah uh, i mean really i think iconic is used you know overused but uh anytime i think any anyone who's even remotely a horror fan sees a log truck they think of that scene yeah yeah it's pretty funny i get so many log truck or truck memes when people are driving behind trucks where they've got all their junk stacked <laughs> up in the back and there's one sharp thing sticking out <laughs> you're like hopefully i don't die i'm like well, get out get in the other lane <laughs> <laughs> yeah don't, don't take a picture of it yeah. <laughs> it, it connects to both your movies yeah yeah <laughs> uh tristan you have another question what's up this is james d lamont from it came from the flyweight productions inviting you to listen to culture shock every second monday right here on withoutyourhead.com I was wondering, it sounds like Robert Che was a mentor to you, and I was wondering if you've ever considered being a mentor to someone else. Yeah, yeah, I, I actually do that a lot. I, I will say I've done that a lot throughout my career where, um, you know, I try to help other people out, um, you know, if I can. I mean, you know, the hardest thing to, to do, you know, is, is, you know, I still work, you know, by my for myself. I mean, I have a great agent manager, but you know, I don't have a production company or things like that. So I'll have a lot of people that'll be like, Hey, can you read my script? And, you know, there are legal reasons why you, you can't read scripts. Um, one funny story I'll tell you, cause everybody's always worried that people are going to steal their scripts in Hollywood. But um, there's a friend of mine that who's a screenwriter and we were at a party like maybe five years ago and they were a little drunk and 
his wife was like, tell Jeff the story, the Final Destination story. And he's like, no, no, I don't, you know, and I've known them forever. And um, so finally he told me, like, he had written basically like a comedy version of Final Destination. Like a guy had a premonition, cheated death, and then death, but death was, in his script, was a complete fuck up. Um, I, I, I don't mean to curse a lot, but no, sometimes, no, yeah. oh, okay. okay, so death was a complete fuck up. So death was like this idiot thing running around trying to kill these people that cheated it. And he submitted it to New Line and they're like, we literally bought the horror version of this like a month ago. So I was thinking, if, wow, if he turned that in like three months later or three months earlier, yeah. he would have thought that I stole his story, you know, because there's so many similar ideas out there. So it's hard for me to read scripts because A, I've only got so much time on, on my hands, but um, I definitely try to help people and connect people. And, and I, I've had writers that I've mentored over the years. Um, you know, my goal is at some point to have a production company where I can also have people working with me to like help facilitate a lot more of that. Um, but there've been plenty of times where I've seen films at film festivals and I've s sent them around to people that I know. Um, you know, I, I do judging for, for festivals as well, oh, like nice. for films and reading screenplays. So I, I definitely am a big proponent in helping other people because, you know, if Bob Shea hadn't have, I mean, I would have still, I know that I would have still been in the industry like that was, I was just too determined not to, but my, I don't know, my career path would have probably been a lot different and a lot more, hard if bob hadn't reached out to me yeah that's one of the main things i miss currently though with the, the going to film festivals so i'm glad uh -huh. that, you, that you're into them as well yeah convention i miss the conventions and the festivals because those things just you know especially when you're a writer you spend so much time like isolated working and i'm just like it, you know when you go to festivals and, and cons and you get to meet the fans and it's just like like so like refreshing and so soul filling you know to go so so it's it's like the definitely something i'm missing especially around this time of year which when the, is when the horror cons are really happening like I, i'm really missing that i'm doing still the virtual yeah. stuff and i've done some judging for you know virtual um festivals but yeah i miss the i miss the people i miss the people i agree and so i rewatched uh, final destination uh for the show and uh, I was just wondering, was Rocky Mountain uh, high, like in your mind when you were when you were writing the script? Because it's used no, was, uh, for a pretty good scene in the movie. Yeah, that was um, that was because James Wong and Glenn Morgan came on board the project, and they they did a pretty big overhaul of the project. And so a lot of the 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 stuff that they did, like the music stuff, that was their that was their selection. And I think the biggest thing that they that they did, and I have to give them so much credit for this, is you know, in my original version since death didn't kill them the first time, it basically exploited some fear of theirs and ha made the characters commit suicide. So it was a little darker, um, <laughs> little tiny bit darker. Yeah. And um, so like, you know, in, in my script, like Alex's best friend, Todd, he still got, got hung, but in my script, he rigged up a noose at, at his family garage and he called his father who was a pastor and he'd done some stuff, stole money from his dad and stuff like that. So he's calling his dad apologizing and the dad's like freaking out because he can tell something's wrong and he's driving home. And when the dad opens a garage, he doesn't realize that Todd's hung a set a noose up in there so that when the dad opens a garage, it hangs him. So the, the, the death scenes, a lot of them are parallel to what I did, but, but they came up with the whole Rube Goldberg idea, you know, that death kind of uses things around you to get you. Mm -hmm. And I think that that actually made the film more universal. Like even like in my version, I know you never showed You never saw death. But mine was definitely a little bit more of a Nightmare on Elm Street kind of take on how death got the victims. So I think the Rube Goldberg um, angle was like a, a very genius idea that they came up with that um, just made the film more universal. Um, with, you know, all the, the world of so many reboots and remakes and, and even doing sequels to older movies, 
has there ever is there talks to do another one at any point in time oh yeah yeah they've been talking about it for a while it's so funny because and i and i and i say this just as a matter of business like i'm it's kind of funny because if this were any other franchise like there would have been 15 of them by now you know because they they do well and people like them um so but for you know for some reason it's like New Line's been a little hesitant about making sequels, you know, as often as they do. And they are a little bit pricey. I mean, the first one was $20 million, I, you know. Mm-hmm. And now you have, you know, horror movies that get made for like five to seven million that are huge hits. So it's, they're a little bit more costly, but they were, they were actively preparing to, you know, to do a new one before COVID hit. Like it was, they were, they were going to try to, because it's the 20th anniversary. I, you know, I, I wrote the first one when I was five. So um, <laughs> it's the 20th, 20th, 20th anniversary. Um, so they, they wanted to have one to come out on the 20th anniversary or, or be ready, you know, in production and ready to come out about this time. But COVID hit. And so that kind of put everything on the back burner. But there's definitely, there will definitely be a sixth one. Uh, you know, though, we say about writing it 20 years ago, if you were to write, like, the sequel, you know, tw- 20 years, people do change a lot. So I would assume it would have a different tone or a different movie, you know, 20 years later, you look at death differently than, than you did when you were younger. I never thought about it. You've asked me the one question and brought up the one thing that nobody's ever brought up to me. Now I have to think for a minute. Um, yeah, it would be interesting... It would be interesting to see how I would would write it now. Um, it's funny because the, in the sequels, you know, because it, you know there is a formula to the movies that they don't want to break. So that's the one angle that we haven't really the sequels haven't really delved into is like how do you know people in twenty twenty view view death as opposed to how they used to view it. Mm-hmm. Probably with a lot of iPhones um, <laughs> <laughs> recording right. recording horrible stuff all the time. Um, yeah. It's funny because I'm not afraid of, I've always said this, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to, my mom lived to be 97. So that's my, my thing is I'm, I'm going to live to be 97. That's, I've got it in my head. So I just don't want to die too young and I don't want to die slowly. <laughs> like, um, and by slowly, I mean, I don't want to be like fall into a, you know, a cavern out in the desert and be stuck there for like um, yeah. weeks and weeks. Yeah. Um, that's, a yeah, really, that's a really unusual take. Most people, you know, are looking forward to that. but i'm not like i'm not like you know i think i've always had a very young at heart kind of personality and i think that that's what kind of keeps people alive a lot longer like i'm i don't stress a lot um and i think stress can hurt you know kill you the most and um yeah so i'm not afraid of death i just don't i just don't want it to happen anytime within the next you know 40 to 50 years yeah that is interesting, though, because that would be hard to do in a movie, the fear of, like, a slow, painful death. You know, within, yeah. like, the Final Destination, because most of the Final Destination stuff is, is a quick death. Yeah, yeah, that would be, that would just be probably one person. <laughs> like, <laughs> right, yeah, that's right. It'd you'd, be like, uh, yeah, the, the 127 hours, it'd be like that, where you're just, like, you're just stuck in the desert slowly. <laughs> right, maybe if, maybe the, the series. Well, uh, yeah, or that could just, that could just be some, somebody could just call it, final they could just do a riff on final destination where it's like the person is slowly slowly dying <laughs> yeah you just keep going back to that character while all the other stuff is happening quick you just go back to the one character he's like yeah still sitting here dying <laughs> <laughs> right yeah 
Reminds me of a scene in another movie. I can't think of the movie. Austin Powers, when, when the oh. cars slowly come in to drive to run him over, and he's they keep coming back. He's like, ah. I love that. That's another New Line movie. I mean, it's, you know, again, who would have thought that that would have been like the phenomenon it is? I, I, I hope they do another one. I love that franchise so much. It's so funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tristan, another question? Well, I, so you were in Kentucky and, and you had this magical relationship with New Line. And then you went to New York yeah. and uh, pursued acting and went to a conservatory. But I, I'm wondering if there was any sort of art scene in Kentucky at all. Um, when, well, when I, where I grew up in high school, we didn't really, because it was a very small town. It used to be a coal, mine, coal mining town. Um, so we didn't have an arts program, but I will say my English teacher um, I talked her into creating like a for, for a semester we had like a, a little theater program and we all got involved in it and we put on a play and it was awesome and um, it was funny because I told that teacher her, her name was Maria Bellamy she's still a really dear friend of mine but you know I told her I said if I ever get a movie made I'm going to bring you out to the premiere and um, you know take you to Broadway and so when the movie came out I actually brought her out to the premiere and we ended up on the Rosie O'Donnell show it was really really it was really <laughs> That's awesome got, yeah. yes go see the Lion King. So I'm a very big proponent of education and teachers because they're so underpaid and undervalued. And apparently now they're like bad people. If you listen to (laughs) the COVID kind of stuff, it's like, wow, those teachers unions are awful. Um, But no, I've been a big proponent of education. So we didn't have a big art scene, but I think that's, you find that in schools across America, like when they start cutting extracurricular stuff, it's the art stuff that gets cut first um, because I don't think most people consider it real work. Um, and, you know, I certainly heard growing up, like, you know, don't major in acting, like get, make, get something where you can get a real job. It's just like people, do, a lot of people just don't consider working in the arts as, is real art. So I think that that's really underfunded in our schools. And I think it's so enriching for people to be able to explore that. Um, I did go to a college, Berea College in Kentucky, which is a phenomenal college. Um, and they had a really good theater program. Um, and it focused on acting. Like I remember I had a choice between two colleges and I went to like the really big university, like EKU in Kentucky. And they had this really beautiful performance, but with a lot of like glitz and things flying from the ceiling and glitter everywhere. And it was just like, wow, this is a big production. And I went to Berea and they had, they had a, of Mice and Men, which is a very intimate, small play. And the acting was just like riveting. And I'm like, I got to go to this college. And so they had a really wonderful art, art program there. Um, and I, you know, Kentucky's actually, it's funny because K- Kentucky's like, and I think Berea is the craft capital of the world. So they're very, very big into the craft side of art, like building, you know, crafts and making crafts. Um, but not so much the acting and, and the painting and the music. Um, but again, I think that's a, that's, an, that's an issue that you find in a lot of towns across America where the arts aren't really encouraged in school or taught enough in school. And I, I think it's a shame, but, um, but you can find communities. That's another great thing about the internet in, these days is like you can find an artistic community, you know, even online to like help you and, you know, promote, you know, um, not promote you, um, Sorry, my brain is like not working as, no, this is actually how my brain usually works. Um, uh, motivate you, thank you, that was what I was looking for, um, to motivate you and inspire you, so. Uh, how has the internet, because um, you would have been uh, starting like kind of the early days of the internet, so, you know, and it's really risen, obviously, in the last 20 years to be doing this. Uh, how, yeah. has that, how has that affected or changed anything you, you've worked on? 
Um, it doesn't necessarily, the, I, I guess the only thing that I've noticed from a purely work point of view is people always want to know how many Twitter followers people have. <laughs> um, and it's, well, it's like, we should cast this person. They have a lot of Instagram followers and there's been no correlation between Instagram followers and um, box office. Uh-huh. So that's been something that, you know, was bothersome for a while, but I think that's starting to die out a little bit. Um, that's really the only side of it from a creative point of view that I saw there be an impact for a long time. It was like, well, let's find out who's got the biggest social media following and then put them in our movies. Um, you know, again, I think it, on the positive, it just it gives people an opportunity to get their work out there and get it seen in a bigger way. So that's been very positive. Um, but yeah, I think that's re- kind of it. I think, you know, it's just, it gives people more accessibility, which is great. Um, it's just how people use it. You know, like when, it, when the internet first started, I was like, this is going to be the most amazing thing in the world because now we can see that, you know, we can see people in other states and other countries and we'll realize that we're all human beings and we'll all like really get along. It's going to be awesome. Cut to 20 years later. I'm like, wow, we fucked that up. (laughs) Yeah. That did not go how I I thought it would. (laughs) And when you talk uh, about constructive criticism, uh, there's a lot of criticism online, but I don't know about the constructive part. No, no. It's, I always, I take it, I take it with a grain of salt anymore. Cause I, I realize like people that are, and again, this isn't just, this is about non-constructive negative criticism. Yeah, yeah. People, people that are angry or yeah, people that are angry or, or, you know, you'll see like somebody that's got like five followers, but they, they tweet like 50 times a day. It's cause they're sitting around angry all the time. So people that are angry are more likely to post something than somebody who watches something or reads something of yours or sees a piece of art that you've done. You know, they're most likely to say, Oh, this is cool. And then they'll show it to their friends, but they're less likely to post a review, you know, as opposed to a person that's going to be like, this is the worst piece of garbage ever. And this person should jump off a bridge uh-huh. and we should shoot their whole family. It's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a movie wasn't for you, but I don't know. About yeah. That. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, let's see in the chat here uh, St- uh, Stellar Steven wants to know uh, did you do research uh, for other deaths in any of the other um, uh, movies like you did for the for the log scene um, I didn't so much do research as I, I I tried to think of scenarios that people found themselves in um, you know that's kind of I think how you kind of when you're looking at a final destination death it's like well, what's a scenario like for the hospital scene? Um, you know, obviously somebody's going to end up in a hospital there. And so, you know, when I, I wrote the story for the second one, like, you know, I, I had that scene in there where you kind of weren't, it was a misdirect on who was going to get killed. And I had the plate of glass, like kill a character, but in, in my version, it like hit them like this way. And like, then they peeled forward and backwards, which I think the splatter that they do with the kid is better. I don't, I'm not proposing that you splatter kids. I'm just um, <laughs> saying that. That's like, no, um, we're going to cut that one part. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff said to go kill kids. What? <laughs> um, but you, you know, when I, when I, when I look at scenes, but especially when I was working on the, the second final lesson, issue, it was trying to find like locations that people are at a lot of times and then figuring out something that could happen at that location. Cause you want to, you want it to be like, Oh, I don't want to go to the dentist anymore now. Or I don't want you know, you always want to hit something. Yeah. Uh, Robert says uh, the airplane f- flight and final destination was the exact same flight number. I was on when I watched the movie for the first time. Oh, 
There, there was um there was a flight 180 from New York to Los Angeles, and I don't I don't know if subconsciously because you know there was a lot of travel, new line travel from I don't know if that stuck in my head subconsciously or or or, or what when I first um, named it flight 180, but um yeah I'm sorry, <laughs> <laughs> but you're alive, so that means that you're gonna have a long healthy life. Very good, yes, yes. Uh, most people are saying that they love your movies, by the way. And uh, AJ oh. says Tony Todd is badass. How you know he is badass, and that uh, for a horror fan, that'd be pretty cool to have <laughs> to have Tony Todd in your first. You know, major I have movie. to say, like when they got him, I was like, "Holy crap, Candyman!" <laughs> like <laughs> Candyman's gonna be my um, yeah. Like he's amazing. I've I had the pleasure of working with him on the um, the uh, Final Wish as well, and he is such a warm, like kind person. He's a, he studied theater. Like I went to see a one man show. He did 90 minutes, just him on stage. This was just like a year and a half ago. And he just owned the theater. Like he's just got such a presence and he was he, so many layers to him. He's such a wonderful actor. And a lot of times, you know, if you watch like the remake of Night of the Living Dead, you get to see different aspects of him. But, you know, a lot of times people just bring him in because he's he's just got that voice and that presence that, you know, it's like, he can he can do that really well, but he's got so many like layers to him. He's just and he's an amazing person. He's just like so down to earth. It's yeah, can't yeah. say enough about Tony. Yeah. I won't plug other movies, but honestly, his new movie Immortal, he's he is great in it. Oh, I, I haven't seen it. that. All right, yeah. now I got it. I got to watch that. All right. Yeah. And uh, while I'm on to the movies, uh, did you see Scream Queen? Since you mentioned you know Mark Patton, his documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's great. Yeah, yeah, I, I I saw that, and I'm I'm glad it. I'm, I'm glad he. It's it's funny because it's it's hard for people if you're not in the situation to understand like because again he had a really great career trajectory going and then when Nightmare Two came out it's literally like they just completely threw him under the bus and blamed him for like the movie not doing as well and you know perception is everything in Hollywood so you the work's going to dry up plus he was dealing with a lot of personal tragedy in his life so. Um, I'm really glad that he's kind of got the catharsis. I, I, I had the chance to meet him. He's, he's a lovely person. Um, and I'm glad he finally got the resolution. But it was kind of funny when you hear people going, well, that happened, you know, 30 years ago. You should just get over it. It's like, well, you're yeah. not the one who had your career ruined. You yeah, know? I mean, it's, that, that, <laughs> that, yeah, that, yeah, that whole, like, uh, people, get over it. It's Yeah. I agree. Uh, did you have another question, Trista? Wondering if you're doing any virtual fests with uh, Don't Look Back. Um, I, you know what? I'm not. Um, but if somebody, add, we're we, no. Wait a minute. Well, I'm not doing it, but we're premiering at Fright Fest in the UK, which is oh, freaking nice. exciting. Yeah. Yeah. How was that Fright Fest a few years ago? Uh, and the thing is, I've ever since I was a little, I saw like this Merchant Ivory movie, Maurice, and I saw Another Country with Rupert Everett, which was great. So ever since I was a little, I was like, I'm going to go to England and marry a Brit. So I've always dreamed about going to, to London. And I was like, well, when I get a movie in Fright Fest, then I'll definitely go. And then my movie gets in this year and it's like friggin' COVID. Um, so I can't go. So, but I, I'm really thrilled that we're, that we're playing there. Like that's such an honor. So I, I thought you meant like, am I speaking? Yeah, Cause I'm yeah. so centered. I'm like, Oh, are you, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, no, we're playing, we're premier, having our world premiere at Fright Fest, which is really exciting. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Too bad you can't. Uh, well, you can make it there, but too bad it's not actually, you know, happening. Yeah, I could virtually be there, but not. I'll go next year. Yeah, yeah exactly. 
Very good. Uh, actually, uh, too, have you ever been to Scarefest in, in uh, Kentucky? I haven't been to Scarefest. Um, I think that's at Scarefest. It's like it's one of the old, I think it might be the oldest uh, horror convention in Kentucky. Well, I'm annoyed they haven't invited me because I, every time I get invited, I've never, I'm one of those guys, like I never turn a festival down just because again, it's like any chance to meet the fans and be supportive. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm there. So, um, yeah. It was a fun, I, I, I went there a few years ago because uh, the guy who does our, um, our written reviews lives in Kentucky and it was a fun show. Oh, cool. Yeah. Did that and the bourbon trail also before I quit drinking. <laughs> You do the bourbon trail, and you don't. I don't remember the next few days after that. But, <laughs> but they were. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a weird concept because like you, the last thing you do is the taste test. Of no one ever has done this of the bourbon, and then like then they tell you, you know, basically you go drive to the next place. Which I don't know. I don't want to you know give a bad name, but it doesn't seem like the best idea to drink a bunch of bourbon then go drive to another uh, another area, but. Yeah, that's Kentucky. That's how we ro- <laughs> that's how we roll in a blue state. <laughs> but I had a good time. That was very fun. All right, so uh, October sixteenth, don't look back in yeah. theaters. Uh, is it going to do like drive-ins? Yeah, drive-ins. Yeah, we're gonna we're st- we're still trying to see which ones are going to get locked down or locked down. Gosh, awful wording. Um, see which theaters we can well lock down. So we're <laughs> yeah we're still seeing which drive-ins we can lock down and. Um, and then it'll definitely be on all the streaming platforms. And you can actually pre-order it now on iTunes. It's already up on iTunes to pre-order. So, nice. um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. And, and also, I, I do have a movie that I produced um, along with some other great producers that Timothy Woodard Jr., who directed The Final Wish, directed. And it's called The Call. And Lynn Shea is in it and Tobin Bell. Um, so there's Which I actually have my notes, but I forgot to mention it. But it's, it's oh, no, no. Yeah. no, no, but it's cool because that's the first pairing of them on screen and they're amazing. Yeah, we, have awesome. a, we have a great cast and it opened Friday and did really, you know, limited uh, theatrical, but it, the per screen average was really high. So um, it'll be playing for, uh, I think, a couple more weeks in theaters and drive in. Oh, so, um, yeah, if you want to get <laughs> if you want to get double Reddick. Um, for October, <laughs> check out the call and check out Don't Look Back. Um, <laughs> cool. I, I'm looking forward to – I've seen Don't Look Back and I enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to seeing the call as well. That was the most ridiculous phrase I, I, I should practice before <laughs> I come on to talk to like, people. <laughs> I just noticed you had a Nightmare on Elm Street shirt on. Oh, yeah. It's, um, but it's it's the um, – it's the remake shirt. So, oh, which you just said bad thing. But I couldn't find an original one, but I'm like, it looks close enough to the – it does, one. yeah. I, I didn't know until you mentioned it. So. The hardcore fans are like, dude, that's from the remake. I'm like, I can't find an original. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. Well, anyone out there can hook up a Jeffrey Reddick with an original Nightmare on Elm Street shirt. Yes. And you a glove and a million dollars. <laughs> yeah, you're not asking for British, much. Yeah. British husband. And a British husband. That's all I want. <laughs> right, right. And world peace. And world peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> Lastly, world peace. Lastly, <laughs> Yeah. After all that, then world peace. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> I, lo- I got to tell you, I love Trista because you, you you've just got this like sweet wholesome look about you. But then when you ask questions, it's like she's like digging in there. Like I got to watch what I say because she's listening to every, everything I'm saying. <laughs> and she's yeah. like coming at me. no, but I don't mean that. Bad. I mean, that's a good way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Trista's great. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. No. No, I love your questions. So. Thank you. Very good. I did too. Excellent questions, by the way. 
Uh, uh, well, how can people follow uh, Don't Look Back or yourself if you want them, if you want them to? Uh, yeah, if you can follow uh, Twitter's the best way. Um, my, my handle on Twitter and Instagram are Jeffrey A. Reddick. Um, I joke, but it's the truth. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm more active on Twitter because, you know, Instagram is very visual-based. And so unless you're, you know, have your shirt off or you're, like, doing something crazy every, t- every day um, – why, you know, people don't want to sit there and watch me typing at my computer. Maybe there are, maybe there's some strange people out there that <laughs> I can just live stream myself. Yeah, I don't, I don't quite get the, the, I don't get it either. It's like, you basically just post a picture. You can't really have a conversation, I don't think, on, on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I might Photoshop my body, my face onto like somebody's body and put it up there, but I am, I'm not going to the gym, so I'm not going to do any thirst quint or thirst trap or whatever they're called. Yeah, I've, I've just now become familiar with that term recently. I saw someone it's using funny, it. I had Mar- no idea what it meant, so I had to look it up. Yeah, yeah I, I learned it when Martha Stewart put a picture up recently, and they were like, it's a thirst trap picture. I'm like, what's that mean? And like, <laughs> oh. I was like, well, <laughs> cool. So, but yeah, maybe I'll just live stream myself typing. There might be some people out there that are like, oh, that's soothing. Um, yeah, hey, ASMR. <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. Click, 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 and then my cat's like walking and meow in the background. I'm like, get away from the keyboard cat because you're not typing. Um <laughs> Uh, and, and the movie handle is don't look back move mov so we couldn't spell out the whole oh because of the, the number of letters yes yeah, yeah. But, um, so, so you can definitely follow follow me in the movie there and yeah we'll be releasing some you know i know we had a exclusive clip on bloody disgusting and we'll have some more clips coming out before the film but um, yeah, I'm just really excited to see what people yeah, excited and nervous to see what people think about it. But I'm really, I'm really proud of it. We had a great cast and crew, and um, it's a fun, it's a fun film. And the call is really, really good, good too. And that's a the call is like hardcore, like R-rated horror film, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's got your blood and guts. And then if you want to think a little, if you want to think a little, and um, you know, I like that they're thinking, thought they're thinking, and not have as much grew on you, then you should go watch. Don't look back. Uh-huh. Yeah, no. I'm looking for. I'm looking forward to the call, and I, I enjoyed. Don't look back. So, it's good stuff. awesome. Oh, yeah. boy, and you're going to continue to direct. Uh, yeah, yeah. I have a couple. I have a couple more projects that I definitely want to direct. So, this was this was a good like first experience. You know, I learned so much on it, and I definitely when I was finished, I was like, okay, I'll do that again. So, I think that's the mark of yeah. My friend, my director friends are like, you're either gonna say you'll do it again or you're going to be like, I hate that. I'm never doing that again. Uh-huh. So I fall into the first category where I want to do it again. So that's very good. All right. So I'll well, keep you all posted if I do. Th- th- yeah, definitely. Love to have you back sometime. Okay. Well, you both have a great day. It was nice meeting you like virtually. Um, you as well. Yeah, I guess this is, this is the new meeting. So I, I, we'll just say meeting you now. Cause this is oh, really- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's so nice meeting you. It's been so much. <laughs> yeah. Lovely <laughs> hanging out with you. hug. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Y'all take Thank care. You. Okay. You as well. Stay safe. I will. You stay safe yeah. as well. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye. Oh, hi. My name is Todd Farmer, and I put Nicholas Cage in space, and welcome to my tool shed. Uh, I'm here to talk to you about voting. And I know you're going to vote because you're smart and because you love our country and you love our planet. And you love our children in the future, and you know that there is an idiot in charge. So I need you to vote, and I know you will vote. But if you could do what I'm going to do and reach out to a couple of others, because there are a lot of people who didn't vote in the last election. There are also a lot of people who voted for an idiot in the last election. 
and they know it. They've seen it. Four years, the smart ones on that side know. So I've reached out to a bunch of people I went to college with. I went to a small Christian college, grew up in a small town in Kentucky. Slowly and privately, I'm reaching out to some of them to talk to them about it. And you know what? It's worked. A lot of people who voted for Trump are going to vote for Biden this time. And a bunch of people who didn't vote last time will vote this time. So do what you can, because we got this, and we have to, because he's already out there saying if he loses, it's because we cheated. And we're not going to cheat. We're going to vote. So thanks for listening, and uh, we're going to win this thing. From ancient terrors to the search for modern-day conspiracies, the tomb of Nick Cage is the new sound in horror rock. Uncover the mystery of old world horror for the new world order on iTunes, Amazon, and more. we should have listened. The tomb of Nick Cage. They're coming at night. Find out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The tomb of Nick Cage. They're